right, as I vowed, we're going to start. <laughs> Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for uh, your provision for the church. Lord, you've not left us uh, sheep without a shepherd. You, we know that uh, you've provided for us structures um, for our benefit. And uh, we pray that we would be attentive and really just uh, try to soak it in and, and consider what the Bible says. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I want to begin by talking about this paradigm that I've always kind of mentioned before, which is there are certain things that are core and there are certain things that are peripheral, right? And I've said before that um, certain things are sort of, uh, uh, we cannot disagree on. All Christians must agree, and if you disagree, you're not a Christian, right? And those core things would be things like the gospel, salvation, our doctrine of salvation, um, the trinity, and then there are certain things that are peripheral, which are nevertheless important, right? It's not like they're unimportant. It's not important, unimportant. Um, it's core and peripheral. Uh, but there's disagreement within the church, right? And uh, we, can, we can disagree in a, hi, welcome. Take a seat anywhere. <laughs> um, there are certain things that uh, uh, we can... Uh, we can disagree, but in a friendly way, but uh, nevertheless, it's still important. So what are some of those things, right? I've mentioned them before, things like gender roles, um, charismatic gifts, charismatic gifts, uh, things like, what else? Uh, end times, also called eschatology. Uh, things like uh, your understanding of Genesis 1, for example. Um, and included in that list of peripheral issues, I would put go uh, church government. Okay? So, I have a definite understanding and, uh, and view. Does anyone need more? Okay. Um, so, I have a definite view and understanding of church government. But if you find yourself disagreeing with me, uh, don't say... That means I must leave the church. Um, no, because again, we remember what's peripheral and what's core. Does that make sense? So, so everything I'm about to say is important. I believe the scripture has a position on this, but it's not the gospel. Okay? All right. Uh, all right. So let's start with the first question, which is why study church government? Um, I think people generally have an aversion to church government, right? What sort of the associations that we have uh, when we think about church government? We think about church politics, right? And people say, you know, I hate church politics. I hate all that fighting. You know, why can't we not think about church politics? Uh, wouldn't it be better, right? And I think there are two problems with that. Number one, I don't think this is a matter of indifference in Scripture. Um, I think actually Scripture has pretty clear instructions about what the church government should be. And so to disobey or to ignore that is to, is to disobey God. And then the second thing is I don't think uh, lack of church government spares us fights. Why do people fight in the church? Because we're sinners, right? Not because there's church government. I think, if anything, church government helps us, uh, it provides us channels and uh, pathways to deal with fights, because there will be inevitable disagreements, differences of opinions. How are we going to settle these, these disagreements? And I think the Bible gives us some instructions on that. So uh, I think church government is, uh, is vital for us and important for us. And so let's look at some passages. Uh, let's look at Hebrews 13.7. Can I have Clarence read that? Okay, so the Bible tells us Look at your leaders, not only just look at them, but imitate them. But that begs the question, well, who are our leaders, right? And maybe we might think of it in a very sort of like broad way, like, oh, you know, the leaders. Who are these leaders, right? We need to know in order to obey this commandment. Uh, and the next passage is even stronger in the language. Uh, read, uh, Yvonne, can I have you read Hebrews 13? Okay, 
Okay? This is very strong language. Obey and submit to your leaders. Right? Um, I think our culture really hates authority. All of us want autonomy. We, we, we just want to be our own boss. And so this really chafes against us. We don't want to submit and obey to our leaders. But it's for our benefit, right? What does the writer of Hebrews says? Um, because they're watching over your soul. And therefore, we should make their job not burdensome and make it a joy because they're doing it for our good. And so this whole purpose of church government is for our benefit, okay? Uh, let's read the next passage, First Peter 5. Nathan, can you read that? Okay, um, and here I've sort of given away the answer a little bit, right? Who are our leaders? Our elders, right? But I want you to notice here, uh, what are the elders, what are the leaders supposed to do? They're supposed to shepherd the congregation. And I think that metaphor is very significant because what is that metaphor saying that we are? Who are we in this sort of shepherd metaphor? We are sheep, okay? The congregation, the church is the sheep. Now, if you know anything about uh, shepherding, of course, we're modern city folks, so we don't know what that's about, right? But in the ancient world, everyone knew what sheep were. What, who are sheep? Sheep are some of the dumbest, stupidest animals possible. And if you leave the sheep alone, like, do you ever see wild sheep ranging, you know, uh, uh, going around nature, just like fending for themselves? No. They're always together in a flock cared for by the shepherd. And if, this, if there's no shepherd, then the sheep will die. The sheep will get hurt. You know, bad things will happen to the sheep. And so the reason why we need church government is because we're sheep, right? We need shepherds to watch over us and care for us. And it says there in First uh, um, Peter chapter 5, it says uh, 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 they provide oversight, right? Um, that word is actually really strong. Uh, it doesn't just mean, you know, just like sort of monitor the situation, right? Uh, the word there means supervise. And we'll actually talk about that a little bit more, that word oversight or overseer. It means to supervise, right? It means to direct. It means to control. Like the sheep doesn't just say, hey, sheep, or the shepherd doesn't say, hey, I'm just checking in on you guys to see if you're okay, right? You got enough food? Um, the shepherd directs, right? They, there's something called a shepherd's uh, staff, which, you know, he like yanks the sheep in the right direction, right? And then in verse 5, it says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Again, it's, I think, crystal clear. The Bible tells us that we are to obey our leaders. All right. Any questions on that before we go on to the models? Uh, there's seats up front and a handout up there. Uh, are there any questions before we dive into the four models of church government? Okay, so this is what I love. I love to like diagram and draw graphs and stuff. So there are actually just three historical forms of church government, and then recently there's been a fourth. And so let me just draw it out for you. Um, the critical questions are these. These are the two main issues when it comes to church government, okay? These are the two questions, two issues, okay? Number one, who rules the church? Or who, uh, maybe another way to put it is, who makes the decisions in the church? And there, have been, there are three possible answers, okay? You could say the bishop rules the church. You can say elders rule the church. And you can say the congregation as a whole 
rules the church. Okay? So those are your three possible answers. Uh, the second issue is what about other churches? What's the relationship we have with other churches? And there are two possible answers. There's something called a connectional, a connectional model, which means that we are accountable and, and, and connected to other churches. And then the other model is that we're independent of each other. Dependent. Okay? And among independent churches, there's actually two versions. There's what I would call the extreme version of independent, which is that you're uh, a standalone church. Sometimes these churches even throw in the name independent in their church name to let you know, right? Like, for example, um, there's uh, in Oakland, Chinese Independent ba Baptist Church, right? So these are independent, meaning we have no accountability or connection to other churches. And then there's what I would call denominational independence. Denominational. And this is something like, for example, the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, their denomination, meaning they sort of associate with one another, right? It's like a whole bunch of independent churches. They huddle together, and they do things together, like maybe missions, or maybe they'll like publish books together, or they support a seminary together, but they're still essentially independent. And then the connectional model is that we're all, there's, there's and I'll explain it a little bit more here. All right, so those are the two main issues. And then if you mix and match those two issues, you get the four, four models of church government, okay? And so let me explain to you, uh, let me diagram for you guys what this is. So here we have bishop rule. And so at the top, you have what's called the bishop. Okay? And under the bishop, he supervises multiple churches. And so he, he appoints a pastor. And under each pastor is the congregation. Okay. Um, and so you can see that it's connected, right? Each church should look relatively the same or sort of have the same theology or the same practices. Why? Because they're all directed by this one guy named the bishop, right? And this model right here, who rules, it's been known as the monarchy model, right? Because the bishop is the king, and the king tells people you know, what to do. It's like the military, right? The pastor is maybe like the sergeant, and the congregation is like the troops, right? And uh, do you guys know that there's somebody above the bishop? Do you guys know who that would be? It's called the archbishop. Okay? And so under the archbishop, you have other bishops, right? And then they each have their own bunch of pastors, right? And so... Uh, you sort of like climb up the ladder, and then you can cover the whole world. And then there is an art. There's somebody above the archbishop. Who would that be? Uh, a cardinal is a kind of archbishop who has certain special powers, namely the ability to vote for who is the pope. But who's above the archbishop? The chief archbishop. <laughs> he goes by a name. Papa, the pope, right? So he's he's numero uno archbishop, right? And so it's a monarchy model. Okay, so this is the bishop model. Um, the second model is uh, the elder rule model. And so you have elders. Actually, I'm going to need some space on top. Okay, the church is ruled by the elders. Okay. And uh, among the elders, right, so the elders is basically, here you have elders, Elders, multiple elders. And then among the elders is the pastor. The pastor is also an elder. He's one of the elders. He's part of, you know, he's equal to the elders. He's not better or greater than the elders. And they rule the congregation, right? They uh, have oversight over the congregation. But it's a connectional model, meaning that... All right, I'm really going to run out of space here. Let me write... Okay? They're connected to other churches. So, so this is one church. Let me, let me sort of draw the diagram here. This is one church. 
this is one church. But the elders themselves are connected through a regional body where all the elders all the elders meet. Does that make sense? And so the elders rule the congregation, but these elders also to some degree have oversight over this congregation, but in, a, in a sort of an indirect way, right? And so because they meet together as a regional body, and so if this congregation, if there's some sort of weird teaching, like they're not teaching the Trinity anymore, then these elders can step in through this regional body and discipline this church. If there's a pastor here who's teaching heresy, then this regional body will say, you're, not, you, 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 you're teaching heresy, you've got to stop. And if they won't stop, then they'll remove that pastor. Does that make sense? So this body right here has power over all the churches. It's somewhat like the bishop model, but unlike the bishop where it's just one dude, this comprises all the elders. And it's connected. You see, every church is accountable to every church. Every church should have the same theology. Every church should be teaching the same thing. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's elder rule connectional. Then what you have is a third. Now, for the longest time, these were just the, these were the only two models. Okay? And then what you had was, in England, you had a whole bunch of people who didn't like the king. And uh, they objected to the king. And the king in the, the Church of England was this model, right? It's called the Episcopalian Church. Um, and the king had so much power because he could appoint bishops or, you know, if there's an archbishop, he and the archbishop are like buddy-buddy, you know, and so he has a lot of power. So the king can sort of influence each congregation through this system. And this system, the elder rule, is less hierarchical, right? Because there's not just one dude, but nevertheless, anytime all the elders meet, the king can sort of come in and sit in and say, hey, so what's going on, right? And so because people didn't want the oppression of the king, they created a new system called the Congregational Independent System. This is sort of like happened in England and sort of to create, to break free from the king so the king has no control and power over the church. And so in this model, you have the congregation. They, they rule. So it's kind of like if elders is a, is a republic, congregation rule is a democracy. Right? Everyone has a say. Everyone has a vote. Everyone decides together as a congregation. And then the pastor, who is sort of the, the sole elder, he is sort of the employee. He is under the congregation. The congregation decides what the pastor should do or say or whatnot. Does that make sense? So everyone decides, you know, the power is with the people. And it's, it's independent in the sense that you have, now I'm going to have to get some space. You have another church. And they don't, neither church says anything to another. So this church may teach against the Trinity. This church may teach the Trinity. And the only thing they can do to each other, they can say, shame on you, bad, right? But they don't actually have any power over every church because they're independent. Does that make sense? They're, they're split. And so this is sort of like, um, you know, they're like these independent cells, you know, like uh, 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 that way, you know, if the king comes and stomps down a church, all the other churches are still around. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like, I don't know, I don't want to use a bad analogy, but it's kind of like Al-Qaeda, right? Like each of them has like independent cells, and you can't really just squash the head, because there's like multiple little independent cells, right? Um, and then finally, okay, so by the way, this one right here is the Puritans, the pilgrims. Because you know, they came to America, because who are they running away from? Religious oppression, right? These guys were relatively, you know, on the in. These guys were on the political outs. These guys were the ones who were being thrown in jail all the time. So they went on the Mayflower and they came to America. So America has, for the most part, been congregation rule independent. Okay? And then, recently, you have uh, a bunch of people who have been growing up with this model and they're like, what the heck? We don't see this in the Bible. Right? This whole congregation rule. Um, and so they said, well, we have to restore elder rule. So it's this model. It's exactly the same as this. 
their elders, and then their pastors, but they're still independent. Does that make sense? There's recently been a kind of four, a fifth model. I hate to throw in so many models. But a fifth model, which I would call the sole pastor over the congregation model, which is um, sort of your non-denominational uh, megachurch. <laughs> okay? Um, what happened was it starts out like this, but the, as the church gets bigger and bigger and bigger, uh, the pastor says, hey, hold on. We can't have 5,000 people voting. It's just better if I decide things. And so it kind of got flipped like this, all right? But this is sort of like not really considered a, a historical model. Um, and so these are the four models that we're going to look at, all right? Are there any questions before I go on to what I think is the biblical model? Is there any clarifications on this? Is there like a list of like, so you think that the bishop is like Episcopalian or Catholic? Yes. Is there like which denominations fall under which kind of church models for government? Ah, yes. I could tell you that. But in, I think it would um, prejudice you. So I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you so that you can really think of it biblically. And then, maybe later I'll tell you which denomination fits where. I, I did sort of let the cat out of the hat here, but it's too kind of easy to tell you that, you know, which denomination has bishop? <laughs> All right. Any other questions? That's a great question. Any other questions? All right. So, which is the biblical model, or which one is taught in the Bible? Uh, let's turn to uh, the next page. I believe it's model number two. <laughs> okay? This is the biblical model. The elder rule connectional model. Okay, so what's my argument for it, okay? Uh, my argument starts in the Old Testament. I think part of the reason why people have such difficulty understand or trying to figure out church government is because they only want to look at the New Testament. Um, but remember, the Bible is one story, right? The people of God are one people. And so uh, we have to remember that when church government began in the New Testament, they largely borrowed it from the synagogue church government. And so it helps enormously to think about how did they do it in the Old Testament. And so... Uh, uh, the first passage is from Numbers 11, and let me set it up for you. Numbers 11 is what, what's going on is Moses is the prophet. He's the leader of the people, but he is experiencing classic pastor burnout, right? He goes to God, he's like, I can't take it anymore. There's too many problems, too many troubles, too many issues. I just want to die, right? I, it's like Monday, Monday morning. And the pastor is just burnt out, right? He can't take it anymore. And so this is what God tells him. All right, so let's read Numbers 11. Who is up next? Uh, Melissa, can I have you read that? So this is Moses talking. I'll keep reading the whole thing. Okay, so what is God's answer? He says, not this model, right? Moses, you can't bear it alone. You're only one man. And so I'm going to give you elders to stand alongside you. They will have the same spirit that is on you, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of, uh, of, of uh, understanding, of uh, God-centeredness. And they, along with you, what is that beginning to look like? They, along with you, will govern the people of God. So it's these two models, right? We still haven't addressed the whole, is it independent or connectional yet? But it's, but it's elders. It's not just one dude at the top. It's a bunch of, or it's a bunch of people. But it's not everyone, right? It's, it's elders. It's certain selected men. Um, and do we see that throughout the Old Testament? I wish I could just like spend like a whole hour just going through all the Old Testament passages. And let me just throw in one, okay? Ezekiel 8.1. Let me just read it. 
uh, and you see this all the time. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house, this is the prophet Ezekiel, with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord fell upon me there, right? He's sitting there, and he's, he's sort of like um, thinking of the, of the, of the people. He's uh, trying to care for the people. And who is he doing with? He's doing it with the elders, okay? Now, that's the Old Testament. Well, what about the New Testament? Um, now, the New Testament, you see somebody called apostles. Right? So there are apostles and then, then there are elders. What's the difference? The word apost uh, the Greek word for apostles is apostolos, right? Easy. I feel like almost every time you see a word, just say, oh, it's just like apostolos. <laughs> apostolos, right? Which means messenger, which means um, it actually uh, means like a power of attorney. Right? Like, let's say you're a king, and you want to talk with the other king. They didn't have Skype back then. So you send a dude who's your apostolos. He has all the powers you have. Of course, he can't act independent because he's your dude. You tell him, tell this king, nah, 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 nah. He goes to the king, and he goes, nah, 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 right? So he deals, right? So that's, the that's, that's an apostle. Now, what's the difference between an apostle and an elder? You guys know? I kind of gave a lot of it away already, but... Um, huh? Elderos? No, the word for elder is not Elderos. <laughs> okay? They both have authority. Okay? Over the church. Okay? But the apostles' authority is directly from Jesus. Right? They received instructions from Jesus. They were witnesses of the apostles. And so, for example, the apostles alone authored the New Testament or they, or, they, or they authorized the contents of the New Testament, right? And so they alone can provide, in a sense, fresh revelation from Jesus because they have the connection to Jesus. They, they were taught by Jesus himself. And so sort of like the, uh, the, uh, the, the flow is here's Jesus. Jesus is the king. He, he tells his apostles what he wants. Uh, uh, he teaches the apostles. The apostles then write it in scriptures, and through the elders, the congregation receives it. Right? So that's kind of the flow. It's like the water flows down through the people. Um, but the one thing I, I think I want you guys to know is that the apostles were one once, once only a historical group. Why? Because they received direct revelation from Jesus. They, they, they were witnesses of their resurrection, right? They, they were instructed by Jesus alone. And so once the apostles died, that's it. No more apostles. Whereas elders are perpetual. It continued on and on every generation. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's the, so here's the issue, right? So, oh, I should read some passages. Uh, there's too many. Let's just read two. Uh, Acts 1, can you read that? Okay. Yeah, see, do you see there, right? Jesus instructed the apostles through the Holy Spirit to teach the church. Uh, let's skip all the way down to Ephesians 2. K can you read that again? So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Okay, so, right? The foundational layer of the church is the apostles and prophets. Founda you don't have multiple foundations in a building. I've never seen, like, foundation upon foundation. You only have one. And once you lay the foundation, the rest of the building can be built, right? And so the apostles is a once-in-a-lifetime historical uh, uh, group, and they sort of write the New Testament. They teach us, and then boom, that's it. Apostles exit stage left. Now what do we do? No more apostles, right? And so that's where we turn to the next passage, because even while the apostles were around, they governed the church with the elders. Acts 15 is the central passage. If we didn't have Acts 15, honestly, like we would, we would be completely in the in the dark about how we're supposed to govern the church. All right, because Acts 15 is uh, about something called the Council of Jerusalem. This is like critical. Okay, has anyone heard of the Council of Jerusalem? 
Anybody? Okay. Well, this is what happened, okay? Paul and Barnabas are in the church in Antioch, right? Let me give you a little map. You know, this is the Mediterranean. Here's Jerusalem. And then here's Antioch, okay? And so Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, and they're teaching the church, they're preaching the gospel, but then a controversy breaks out. And that controversy is that some people, called the Judaizers, are saying that in order to be saved, you need to be circumcised, right? And Paul and Barnabas say, no, you don't. The only thing you need is faith, right? Faith, you receive salvation through faith, not faith and circumcision. And they can't settle the controversy in Antioch, the church in Antioch. So what they decide to do is, along with Antioch and a bunch of other churches, they all send leaders down to Jerusalem, elders, and they convene a council in Jerusalem to decide the matter. Okay? And so let's read the passage. Um, I wish we could read the whole passage, but obviously we don't have time, so I'm just going to select some. Um, uh, Eric, can you read the whole of Acts 15? The seven men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. When they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation there, together, they delivered the letter. Okay, so here's what's happening, okay? Stay, don't flip the page yet. Stay on that page. Um... Notice that this controversy is not decided by one or two people, which is really astonishing because we have those people in the New Testament, right? Why doesn't just Peter and Paul sit down and have a confab, right? Notice they don't do that. Why doesn't just the apostles decide? No, they bring in all the elders, right? And they decide together. And notice that they don't bring in the whole con the whole church. They don't say, all right, everyone, everyone who's a Christian, everyone gets a vote. Do you think circumcision is necessary for salvation? No, they don't allow the people to, to decide because they don't know any better. It's for the elders and for the apostles to decide the matter, right? And notice that they make a decision. This is a regional body, of a collection of multiple elders from multiple churches. They make a decision and then they write a letter and that letter is sent to multiple churches, right? Notice in verse, uh, bottom of a third paragraph, verse 23, they send a letter to the churches in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, right? So they make a decision, and the churches in Cilicia, Antioch, Syria, Jerusalem, it's binding to all of these churches, right? It's not like, well, this is a decision only for Jerusalem, but Syria and Antioch, you can decide your own matter. Is circumcision necessary? You decide. No. The decision here binds all of these churches. What does this model look like? Hmm. It looks like elder rule connectional. Right? It's not independent. It's not congregations deciding. It's not one dude at the top. It's all the elders deciding as a regional body, binding on all the churches underneath them. Does that make sense? You know why else we know that the church is connected to one another? Think about the metaphors Paul gives us. Paul says the, uh, the church is the body of Christ. We are connected to one another. Now, we can say that of individual members, but I think we can also say that of individual churches. We're all connected. Well, we can't say, you do your own thing, I'm going to do my own thing, and we'll maybe just have coffee together once in a while. We're connected. We're pulling together. We're accountable to each other, right? This model is great because something happened in Antioch. A controversy broke out in Antioch. They couldn't handle it themselves, so they kicked it up to a higher group. And then the higher group tells Antioch, as well as all the other churches, this is the decision. 
But if, if, it's, if everyone's independent, then Antioch has this raging controversy, and, they may, and what if they decide the wrong way? What's to stop all the other churches from telling Antioch you're wrong? There's nothing. They have to be connected through a higher regional body. Is there any questions? That, by the way, is the case I just gave you for number two. Yes? I have a question you might answer as you go further along. But yes. Even within certain denominations, they split. Yeah. So do you, when you split off to different denominations within a denomination, do all those elders still get together to rule, or do you kind of say, well, we'll split off? You know, within the Presbyterian group. Different. Right, groups. right. Yeah. So this applies only within a denomination. There are denominational splits. And uh, to some degree, it's good because there was something called the modernist controversy in the 1920s. This is when people started saying the Bible isn't true, there's no miracles, Jesus isn't really God. And then they had the majority vote. They had the majority of the elders. So then the small conservative side broke off. You know, and said, we have to just form a, a new church. And actually, when they broke off, they basically said the other denomination is not a denomination. It's not a church. I think this question is more about, like, uh, a church within a denomination splits. And then, so they're, both churches are in the same denomination still. Do those elders still meet together? Is that? Well, that was the next question. It's leading up to that. Oh. But, I mean, yeah, that's part of the thing, right? So if there's a split, for example, there's some sort of major problem. They kick it upstairs to the regional body. Mm-hmm. And then the elders from all the other churches weigh in on this situation. But what if they don't agree with the regional body and then takes the next They cannot step? disagree with the regional body. But they get split off to become independent. Yes, that happens. Now listen, okay? This is, I believe this is a biblical model, but because we are Americans, right? And because our, the pilgrims are our forefathers, okay? We, some people are in this model, and sometimes the regional body says something that we don't like, guess what we do? Do we submit? Do we do what Hebrews tells us? Obey and submit to your leaders? No, we say we will be free. <laughs> we will be independent. I would say that's wrong. Um, that's wrong. Now, does that happen a lot? Yes. <laughs> so, you know, again, this is where it goes back to it's peripheral to some degree, right? You can have the wrong church government, but you can still be a great church, you know. Um, this is maybe maybe I should say this is ideal. Does it happen all the time? No. It's ideal. It's kind of what we should be aiming for. Any questions? Because, again, the Council of Jerusalem, Acts 15, is our model. The Council decides, binding on all the churches. The church in Antioch can't say, I'm going to split from your denomination. <laughs> there were no denominations, right? If you break off, you, you're just a pagan. <laughs> right? Um, all right, let's go on, okay, because we're running out of time. Uh, next page. Uh, in each church, there is a plurality of elders. In every case, you see not just one elder in the church. You see multiple elders. And let me just cite one passage. Okay, Acts 20, the second passage. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. The church in Antioch had multiple elders. This is the case in every single church. You never see a church with only one elder. And I think this has incredible practical wisdom because think about it. If there's just one elder in a church... That means that church is subject to the blindness and to the narrow perspective of only that dude, right? And we know, the Bible tells us that everyone is a sinner, everyone falls into error, and so there's safety in numbers because the other elders can say, hey, you're wrong, and the other elders can, can, can keep that elder accountable. Does that make sense? So we all kind of watch each other in this model where there are multiple elders, right? Um, let's move on. Point number two. What about bishops, overseers? Uh, my argument is that bishops and are interchangeable terms. Right, look. So what about this model? Well, most of you are probably not convinced of this model, so I don't even spend, spend much time. But this model basically is that bishops are over elders or, or are over an elder because they only have one elder. 
the, the, the rector or the priest of the church. Um, here's the thing, okay? The Greek word for bishop, and does anyone know the Greek word for bishop? No, it's not bishop plus. It's episcopos, which is where we get the word Episcopalian, right? And then uh, the, Greek, uh, the Greek word for elder, it's not elderos. Presbyteros, right? All right, so the Greek word for presbyteros means someone who's older and wiser, right? And then the Greek word for episkopos, which is translated in, in the ESV, and I agree with this translation, is overseer. And basically, an overseer is a foreman who has a bunch of workers under him, and he directs and manages all those workers. Does that make sense? And so these two words are different aspects of the same office. That's my argument. There's no difference between episkopos and, and presbyteros. Okay? And how do we know that? There are so many passages. Let me just do Titus 1, okay? Let me read for you. Uh, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I had directed you, right? So there are elders, right? In the same passage, look down to verse 7. For an overseer, which is the word episkopos, some translations put it bishop, for an overseer, as God's stewards must be above reward, and it goes on and on, right? In the same passage, he says, I want you to appoint elders, I want you to appoint presbyteros, because, you know, episkopos is like this. He mixes the two words. You see that, right? If you're not convinced, read the other two passages on your own time. Okay? This is, by the way, without dispute. Even Episcopalians agree on this. Their argument is historical, not biblical. Um, all right? Let's move on. Point number four. All right. Now, who are these elders? What are the elders supposed to do? Um, let's talk about that, because this is very important. I cannot leave you without talking about this. All right. If you look at, for example, um, 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's a, it's a long description of who elders are. And actually, the vast majority of the passage talks about the character qualities of the elder, the spiritual maturity of the elder. But there is one little line here that helps us to understand what their duties are. And so let me read it for you. The elder right, must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Do you understand the analogy there, right? He's saying the elder has to be a father that shows that he can manage his family, right? This is the, this, he has to be good at this. Otherwise, how can he be good at this? Does that make sense? Now, the father obviously has more power in the sense he could, t he could tell him, don't eat broccoli, you know, only eat ice cream, and the child should listen, right? Maybe it's the opposite. Don't eat, don't eat ice cream, only eat broccoli. And the child says, okay. If the elder says to you, don't eat ice cream, only eat broccoli, you'll be like, I don't think so, right? Um, the elder has what's called spiritual authority. Okay, but it's an analogy. Do you see? If, if you're a bad father and your children are unruly and they're disobedient and they cannot submit to you, then what makes you think you can be a good elder? You cannot. It's the same skill set. Does that make sense? So the skill set of a father teaching and guiding his children is the same skill set as an elder, what he does to the congregation. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, let's go on to the next passage. 1 Peter 5. We, are, we actually already read this, but let me just point out the bold. Verse 2. He says, shepherd the flock. Well, let me actually, let me, let me go back to... All right, I've already, agree I've already decided we're going to go over time. <laughs> Let me write the description of an elder here. So what's the first thing an elder should do? He should manage a church. Okay? He needs to be able to manage a church. And it's the word oversight, right? Episcopos. And what is entailed in management? I would say, for example, finances. Who decides the finances? He sets the vision uh, and the direction of the church. They do things like uh, hiring staff. Not hiring pastors, by the way, why not pastors? 
because the pastor is an elder. So the elders don't pick other elders. The congregation votes for the elders. Um, so that's the first thing, right? The elder has to be able to manage the church. The other thing, if you look at 1 Peter 5, is he has to shepherd the flock, right? And so I would say the second skill set is shepherding. We usually think of, of shepherding congregation as only what pastors do. That's what, past, that's what pastor means, actually. Pastor means shepherd. Um, but 1 Peter 5 clearly says elders are supposed to shepherd the congregation as well. It's not just pastor's job. Elders are also shepherds, right? So in other words, they have to love the people. They have to have a pastoral heart. Does that make sense? So it's not just top-notch management skills. It's not just people, you know, the ability to love people and care for them and really watch out for their spiritual health. But if you also look and um, if you also turn to the next page, if you also look at James 5, right, it's, is anyone sick among you? Let the elders, let him call the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And so the, elder, so the elders also visit people. You know, it's not just pastors. If, you know, one of you gets sick and you're, and you're in a hospital, it's not just my job. It's the job of the elders to go and care for you and pray for you and watch over you. And then finally, if you look at Acts 15, the other thing they do is they do theology. Right? Because they, they make doctrinal decisions. So they have to love studying the Bible. That's key. They have to do these three things. They have to have management skills over the church affairs, direct division, they have to love the people and shepherd people. People, They're just like pastors in that sense. And they have to do theology. It's not just the pastor who's the Bible expert. The, the elders, to some degree, have to study independently of their own, the Bible. Okay? Are there any questions? Let me go to the next point. And this is actually really crucial, so I have to say this as well. Is there a difference between pastors and elders? Right? Because so far I've said that elders do what seems like what pastors do, right? And I would say, substantively, no. Elders and pastors are the same. There is no difference in responsibility and power. Okay? Pastors are just one of the elders. Pastor is, you can just call the pastor the el an elder. So is there absolutely no difference? And I would say, well, there is some difference. If you look at 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you should not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and a laborer deserves his wages. Okay, this is very, very important, that first Timothy 5, I mean, the, the first uh, Timothy 5 passage. Because what does it tell us? Pastors, okay, it says some elders are worthy of double honor. What's the first layer of honor? Is what elders have, right? The honor of authority the honor of, of directing the church. But there are some elders who have a double honor, right? And so I would call these guys teaching elders. Because what they do is they specialize in preaching and teaching. Okay? They're specialists. Now, all elders should be able to teach to some degree in the sense that they know their theology. But pastors do it full-time. And do you know why they do it full-time? Because they're worthy of a double honor. What's the second honor that these special elders get? What does it say in the text? Yes. Okay, they're paid. Okay? Regular elders are not paid. <laughs> You see that? Because they don't they only do they only manage the church part time. And they're not specialists. Right? They're paid. This makes a lot of sense. Think about it, right? Do you want your pastor, the the guy who's 
who's chiefly preaching and teaching, do you want him to do it when he comes home after work at 8 p.m. and like grabs an hour or two of studying the Bible and then comes before you? No, right? You want this dude to do it all the time, just soaked in the Bible, thinking about things, and it's unreasonable to say do it for free. He's got to take care of his family, right? It says don't muzzle an ox. I love that analogy. It's like this, what's a muzzle, by the way? It's a thing that like traps your mouth, right? And an ox normally like treads grain. He's, mum, mum. He's munching while he, he mum, mum. And it is like, don't muzzle him. <laughs> so the pastor, while he's working, feed him a couple of times, right? <laughs> but what differentiates pastors who are really just elders from other normal elders, what I would call ruling elders, is that they're not paid, normal elders are not paid, and they do it part-time. Does that make sense? So basically, they have another job. They're out there so they can support the church because they're not doing it full-time like, like pastors. Um, any questions on that? And so that's my argument why the people who govern the church are the elders and the pastors. And I, and I would say that these guys right here have equal power. Okay, it's not like pastor gets two votes, the rest of the elders get one vote. Pastor gets one vote, elders get one vote each. Now, obviously, pastors will have a greater influence on the church than the other elders simply because he specializes in preaching and teaching. And to some degree, he's also teaching his own elders. He's training his own elders. Right? So obviously, he's going to have an outsized authority and influence, but it doesn't mean he has formal, uh, greater power. And the pastor should have the humility and the modesty to sort of like... To, to, to step back and allow the elders to, to govern the church with him as a team, right? And again, I think this multiple elder policy is really great because the elders provide accountability to the pastor. You know, the pastor, I mean, who is he going to confess his sins to? Who am I going to say, I'm struggling with this. I need prayer for this. Oh, this is really hard. The other elders who are shepherds themselves, who have the wisdom, who have the, uh, the responsibility, who have the training as he does, to, to care for him. You see what I'm saying? So it's like a team accountability. It's like an accountability group among the elders. It isn't just one guy all the way at the top, like the archbishop. Any questions? Any, yes, Jeff. Does the elder have to be married and have children? Because it says he has to manage his family. We'll talk about that to, that to some degree next week. We're going to talk about can elders be women, for example. I would say no. Because Paul was an elder... He was not married. So, there you go. Paul, whatever Paul does, it's good enough for the rest of the elders. Any other questions? Yeah. So, I think the elder rule is that they're all under the same denomination, right? So, does that mean that every church can have a denomination that should be non denominational churches? That's my position. That's my position. Does anyone else have any questions? I apologize for going razor fast. As I said, there's just a lot of material here. Next week, we're going to also tackle this issue. We're going to sort of do the cleanup and talk about other things. But this is basically the argument. This right here looks like, well, I already raised this, the Council of Jerusalem. The Council of Jerusalem is our model. Okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have provided us leaders and shepherds over us to care for our souls. Lord, we pray that you would give us the humility to submit under them because they love us, because they're watching over us and they care for us. Help us to have wisdom and discernment as we move forward with electing interim elders uh, in the very near future. And uh, eventually, down the line, we will have permanent elders. We pray that you would watch over this church, love this church, care for this church, and may the gospel preaching never be compromised. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.